Please open your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. This morning we'll be studying the entire chapter. The vision of the golden lampstand. Zechariah chapter 4. If you're looking for Zechariah, start in Matthew. Go back two books. You've got it. Let's begin by reading all 14 verses of Zechariah chapter 4. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand all of gold, and a bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl, and one the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, Grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Probably one of the more difficult visions in the book the least amount of detail. You'll remember the pattern of this book up to this point, the first six chapters, is God sends Zechariah to a discouraged, broken, remnant people of Israel. These are the 49 or 50,000 Israelites who've returned from Babylon, from, from captivity, by the decree of Cyrus, now under the rule of Darius. And they come back to find the temple destroyed, the walls broken down, enemies all around them. And initially, they're excited. They, they begin to rebuild the temple. Cyrus even authorized Babylon to pay for the re- reconstruction. But very quickly, they lost zeal. They encountered enemies, and they gave up. A discouraged people. And so God sent two prophets to Israel, Haggai, who began his ministry a few months before Zechariah, and Zechariah. And and both of these prophets began their ministries with a call to repentance. God was not going to bless a disobedient, faithless people, and he dearly wanted to bless Israel. And the people respond in faith. The people respond. They hear the prophet's word, and they obey. And, And the rest of this book is a book of blessing to a discouraged people. It's a very encouraging book. 
is said most clearly by the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ in chapter 1, verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you've been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. And chapters 1 through 6 then form a single night in the prophet Zechariah. In one night, the Lord sends him eight visions. We refer to them sometimes as the night visions, each one of them giving a word to God's people, a word of their comfort and their enemies' destruction, of their future establishment and prosperity, of their coming Messiah. And we've looked at them. And so chapter 1 first had the, the vision of the red rider and his, his night garrison planning a conquest as these, these advanced scouts come to meet with him in a myrtle grove. And we learn that God has once again chosen Jerusalem and he is angry at the nations. That sort of sets up the theme, unpacking those themes. God's love and plan for Jerusalem and Israel offset by his judgment on the nations who are at ease, who, who attacked his people. And then in the second vision, at the end of chapter one, we saw the four horns and the four craftsmen. The four horns, the four world powers who would successively dominate and denigrate Israel. And we learned that while God has superintended that, he's also superintended those who would cast down those kingdoms. That the destruction of, of Babylon had already been accomplished. As, as Cyrus came in while Belshazzar had his drunken feast and the hand wrote on the wall, meeny, meeny, tequilar farsen, and the Persians took over Babylon. And after the Persians, um, Alexander the Great and the Greeks would take over, and then the Romans. In chapter 2, we see the third vision, the vision of the man to the measuring line. And the meaning of that vision was a call to Israel still in Babylon. The overwhelming majority of the Israelites were still in Babylon in the foreign land, to come, to come, come home. Israel will be rebuilt. Jerusalem will be rebuilt. And judgment is coming upon the nation. So it's a double reason to get out. Get out because you're in a dangerous place in Babylon. Get out because where you're called to is blessed, secure, and stable. Then in chapter 3, we saw the vision of the priest with dirty clothes. I think a high point of the book of Joshua, the high priest, standing before a heavenly court. And the, the accuser is on hand, as is the defense attorney, the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate Christ. And we see this amazing picture of the gospel at work, how the accuser doesn't even get to make his accusation. He never actually makes his case. The defense attorney, the divine advocate, silences him. And the defense attorney, the divine advocate, declares him forgiven, and he super supercharges, not supercharges, he superintends, there we go, he superintends the removal of the priest's dirty clothes and the giving of a new righteousness. And in doing so in chapter 3, the, the religious leader of Israel is confirmed. Joshua the high priest is confirmed in his office. If there's any doubt in the people's minds, is this man qualified? I mean, after all, he was born in Babylon. I mean, can the priesthood continue when there is no temple? The clear answer, yes, it can. Joshua is chosen by the Lord. He is divinely installed by the Lord. He is given access and right to rule what will be the rebuilt temple, to offer sacrifices. And the Lord has promised him the ability to approach his very throne interceding for the people. And so the religious leader of Israel is confirmed in chapter 3. 
Now we look in chapter 4 as the, the focus turns to the political leader, Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is a descendant of David. He's a Davidite, and he's the closest they're going to get to a king in this time. And remember, they're still under foreign rule. They're allowed to go back to their land. They're authorized to rebuild their temple, but they do not have an independent existence. And so Zerubbabel is called, in some translations, a governor, but he is the political head. And he's a Davidite. He's a descendant of David. And this prophecy, the, the vision of the golden lampstand, functions for a number of things, but most immediately it emphasizes that Zerubbabel is the Lord's chosen as well. That Israel's two leaders, Joshua and Zerubbabel, are divinely appointed, are to be trusted, that they're not usurpers of an authority that aren't theirs, but that the Lord God has installed them. But more to that, what this chapter shows us is how do we as people deal with difficult tasks? How do we deal with the, what can look like the impossible? There's, there's a very powerful, simple, and important message for us here about how we as God's people deal with what appear to be insurmountable tasks, discouragement, difficulty, sorrow, and it's all in this vision of the lampstand. Now, we're going to study it in three points, and we're going to look at the text slightly out of order. The reason for that is, is if you look in the very middle of the, of the text, um, verses 6 through 10, we have the two prophetic words. In verse 6, then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. And then verse 8, then the word of the Lord came to me. And so the center of this passage is, is a direct revelation, an oracle from the living God, first to Zerubbabel and then to Zechariah. But the, the, the word only makes sense as we understand the meaning of the lampstand. And, and the description and the exposition of the lampstand sandwiches that, that prophetic oracle in the middle. So verses 1 through 5 show us the lampstand and Zechariah begins to ask questions and then picking up in verse 11 more questions. So we're going to look at it from the outside in like successive layers of a sandwich till we get to the center, God's word for Zerubbabel, God's word for Zechariah. So first let's take a look at the vision of the golden lampstand itself. It's in the first three verses. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of sleep. Now, um, apparently Zerubbabel had either, I mean, Zechariah, with the Z's, it gets tricky. Um, Zechariah was apparently so overcome, so awed, so um, blown away, as it were, by the, by the visions up to this point that he'd lost consciousness or fallen asleep. Commentators dispute whether this is real sleep because he's awakened like a man who is awakened, not exactly sure how you can be awakened like someone who's awakened. but um, Or perhaps he had sort of slipped out of his prophetic awareness. Whatever it is, he's now called back to attention. Something new is put in front of him. And I want you to get the drama of this. What time of the day is it that this is taking place? It's night, right? So in, in darkness of night, he's awakened like a man out of sleep. And the interpreting angel said to me, what do you see? And I said, behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it and the seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. And I just want you to stop and imagine what a resplendent and glorious sight that is. It's dark, it's night, you're awakened out of sleep, and boom, here is this large, solid gold lampstand lit up with 49 tallows, 49 flames. I mean, it must have just lit up his sight, 
would have been very impressive. And that is the description of the, the golden lampstand. Now, one of the difficulties that we have is we hear that, and when we think of lampstands, we either think of things for very, very posh, fine dinner parties or things from yesteryear. And that was not the case in, in Zechariah's day. In fact, more to the point, such a lampstand is described in Scripture. Now, do you notice one of the differences in this passage from the other visions? In nearly all the visions, Zechariah asks a question. This is the only one where when he asks a question, he is rebuffed. In fact, he has to ask three times. Notice that in verse 4. I said to the angel, what are these, my Lord? Then in verse 11, what are these two olive trees? And then verse 12, what are these two branches? And the first two times he asks, his response is, don't you know, don't you know? And so you get the distinct impression that he is supposed to understand the meaning of this lampstand. That simply doesn't occur in the other visions. He asks a question, he gets an answer. I mean, you can just look down in chapter 5. In chapter 5, verse 10, I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, to the land of Shinar, and so forth. And all the other visions, when he asks the question, he just gets an answer. Here, he's forced to ask three times, the first two times, the answer he gets is, don't you know? Don't you know? And so when we find a very similar lampstand, and if you keep your finger here and turn to Exodus chapter 25, I think we're on to something. God assumes Zechariah and his audience should have at least some idea of what this lampstand is. And when we turn to Exodus 25 in the tabernacle code, we get a description of something that looks awfully similar. In fact, if you look through the Old Testament, you're really only going to find one golden lampstand. And it's the golden lampstand from the tabernacle and later the temple. Let's just read about that in Exodus 25, verses 31 to 40. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its sides, three branches of the lampstand out on one side, and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side. Three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the branch, and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower on the other branch. So for the six branches going out of the lampstand, and on the lampstand itself there shall be four cups made like almond blossoms with their calyxes and flowers, and a calyx of one piece with it under each pair of the six branches going out of the lampstand. Their calyxes and their branches shall be of one piece with it, the whole of it, a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. Its tongs and their trays shall be of pure gold, and it shall be made with all these utensils out of a talent of pure gold. And see that you make them after the pattern for them, which is being shown you on the mountain. So here we have what is, if you've seen the menorah, pictures of the Jewish menorah candle, it's, it's a seven-candled candle. There's a center pillar with a candle, and then three branches to the left, three branches to the right. It's made of solid gold. And the Lord described its its use, its function, its shape. And we know from later accounts that it was made. In fact, in Solomon's temple, there are many such candles there, such lampstands. And it was used for light in the temple. Turn, turn just uh, two chapters further, or five chapters further into Exodus chapter 30, and we get a little more insight into its use. 
chapter 30, verses 7 through 8. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense for the Lord throughout your generations. And so this lampstand made for the tabernacle and later for the temple, the priests had to come in every morning and pour oil and trim the wicks. And then every night when they'd light it again, they'd light it in the morning when it was dark. And then they'd light it at night as twilight grew. They'd again pour in more oil. They'd tend to it. They'd cut the wicks if necessary. And that was the maintenance for these golden lampstands in the temple. Now, I'm quite convinced this is the antecedent. This is what Zechariah is supposed to be linking to. And I think to some degree, he does get it. Because the question he asks is, what are these? He's focusing at some of the differences. Because while there's a lot of similarity, a large gold lampstand associated with the temple, because remember, the word God's going to give to Zerubbabel will be about building the temple. There, there are at least three significant differences here. That, that I'm sure caught Zechariah's eye. The first is the large bowl on top. This is a reservoir for oil. And there's no such large bowl in the description of the um, lampstand in Exodus. This is, this is a lampstand with a large bowl to hold, presumably, a large amount of oil. And the second, each of the lamps has seven lips. And, and what this is is an indentation where you can lay the wick. So, whereas the description of the lamp in Exodus, it has seven flames, this has 49. Seven per lamp, if you follow. So, it's much larger, it's much brighter, it's much more illuminating, and I would suggest, therefore, much more glorious than the lampstand of Exodus. And third, and the thing that probably grabs Zechariah's attention the most, is what he fixes on towards the end of this chapter, are the two olive trees on either side. And we learn from, from the end of this passage in Zechariah, now we're back to Zechariah, that these two olive trees are hardwired into the lamp through golden tubes. Look down at um, chapter 4 of Zechariah, um, verse 11. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out. So I want you to get the picture. You've got a lampstand, very much like the one in Exodus for the temple, except this one is seven times brighter with seven times more flames. And this one is a large reservoir for collecting oil. And it is directly connected to olive trees that are constantly pouring oil through the golden pipes, presumably into the reservoir, that's the vision that Zechariah sees. And we've got to ask ourselves, okay, what does this mean then? What does this mean? And people, the commentators get tripped up on the, the significance of the candlestick, the, the lampstand. What is it supposed to represent? Some people have suggested it's the temple and others the presence of God and others the people of Israel. But I think it's best to let the text direct it. Let the text make sense of this for us. And I think we'll see it's pretty directly connected to the temple. That's what we're going to, the temple rebuilding project. The temple rebuilding project. And now we're going to look at the meaning of the vision. And I think we can all sort of stand alongside of Zechariah when he asks his question. and says, what does this mean? When we're saying, amen, Zechariah, you, you ask him. 
Um, I, think, I think it will become clear. What is the meaning of the vision? I think the first key is that he asks, what are these? I think he's looking at the, the additions, what's changed. He, he understands the connection. There's a gold lampstand for the tabernacle and for the temple. Here's a gold lampstand in connection with rebuilding the temple. I, I think he's focused in on the differences. He's focused in on the olive trees, the extra pipes, the bowl. What are these? I'll sort of add in additions. So I just want to stand back and just observe what the implications are of these differences. If we're looking now at the, the similarity and now the differences between this lampstand and the lampstand in Exodus, I think at least three things come out. And I'll cheat a little bit by, by jumping ahead to verse 6 to confirm my answer. Um, look at verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is a vision about how God supplies strength to accomplish his work. Now in the text here, it's the work of Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple. And I think with that hint, we can start to make sense of this, that the big difference between this lampstand and, and the lampstand in Exodus is this is, for lack of a better term, an automatic lamp. It needs no human tending. It doesn't need priests to come in and light it in the morning and to pour oil in the morning and to, to trim its wicks in the morning. And it doesn't need priests to come in at night and do the same thing. It has an uninterrupted flow, right? It's got a huge reservoir. This is an automatic lamp, unattended lamp. It requires no human agency. And, and so as the Lord gives a word to Zerubbabel about the power that he will supply, I think that's what we're supposed to get from it. Here's this vision of this lamp lighting up the night for Zechariah. And from it, we're going to see three things. God's supply, first, is super abundant. God's supply is super abundant. A large reservoir hooked up to trees, so much so that it can power seven times the lights of the original candlestick that was supposed to be in the tabernacle. I mean, there's so much oil here that you've got leftovers for reservoirs hooked into the olive trees that it can power seven times the lights. It is a super abundant supply. That's obvious. The power, the enabling that God is offering Zechariah is super abundant, super abundant. And we, and we know it's connected with the Spirit. The Spirit is commonly linked, by the way, with oil in the Old Testament. And the two offices that, that were anointed, the, the prophet and the king and the, the priest, sorry, the, the priest and the king, are anointed indicating they've received God's Spirit. In fact, the very term Messiah, Messiah, means one who is anointed. It's a picture of the Spirit empowering someone for work and for ministry. And God's supply of his spirit for work is super abundant. I mean, just, just think of the language of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 29. <clears throat> it shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions, even on the male and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit. Joel predicting a day where God's enabling spirit wouldn't just go to this leader or that leader for this temporary period or that temporary period, but here he'd pour out, notice that liquid language, 
as the Spirit is connected with, with oil, he'll pour out his Spirit on all flesh. Super abundant supply. I mean, we know that that was fulfilled in, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. So, so God's provision of his Spirit for, for empowerment his word to Zerubbabel, and, and by extension to us in the church who've received that promise of Joel, is superabundant supply. Second, point B. God's supply is supernatural. God's supply is supernatural. You, you get that also from the picture of this lampstand. No human agency is required. You don't need priests to come in and tend it. You don't need people to fill it with oil. It takes care of itself. This is an automatic lamp. And that's the point that the Lord makes to Zerubbabel in verse 6. Don't, don't look to your power, Zerubbabel. Don't look to your strength. Look to my spirit. Supernatural means. So the power, the strength that God promises here is super abundant and it's supernatural. It's supernatural. And we'll, we'll get to more on that a little bit later as we look at some of the application. It's supernatural. Super abundant, supernatural, but point C, God's supply is super intended. Super intended. And what I mean by that is this it's mediated, it's overseen, it's directed by specific channels. In this case, the two olive trees. And we find out at the end of this passage, th those two olive trees aren't arbitrary or accidental, they represent specific individuals. L look at the end of chapter 4 um, in verse. Oh, pick it up in verse 12. And a second time I answered him and said, what are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? And he said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, these are two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So the identity of these two trees, these two sources, think how this works. These are the ultimate sources the reason why no human agency is needed is because these trees are there pouring oil through the golden pipes into the bowl. And you think to yourself, okay, then, then who are these anointed ones? Who are these messiahs? And the word messiah, messiah, means anointed ones, what the Greek Christos or Christ means. It's an anointed leader. Well, I think it's pretty obvious if you think we're at the center of of the eight night visions. And who have we just seen in chapter three? One of Israel's leaders, their high priest Joshua. This prophecy centers on Israel's other leader, their, their kingly leader, or as much of a king as they can muster, Zerubbabel. Who were the two offices anointed with oil in the Old Testament upon their taking on their offices? The king and the high priest. I, I think the meaning is clear. What, what God is saying is he is mediating his spirit and his power and his strength through the agency, these branches of Joshua and Zerubbabel who are the current two branches of the prophetic and, and, and priestly tree and the kingly tree through those offices. The point being for the people that God is going to supply the power they need. He's going to do it by his spirit, he's going to do it supernaturally and superabundantly, but he's going to do it through the leadership of his appointed leaders, through, through the Davidic leader, political leader, and through the priesthood and the, the high priest. Joshua and Zerubbabel are the current two branches. We also get insight into this being superintended by the eyes that show up at the end of verse 10. These are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. It's interesting, we... 
A lot of commentators want to picture this lampstand as, as comparing Israel as a light to the nations, drawing the nations in. And there's a sense in which Israel is a light to the nations. But here, notice who's doing the seeing. For whom is the benefit of the light here? It's the eyes that are on the lampstand. The lampstand's doing the seeing. The lampstand's got seven eyes looking out. The, the light is for the benefit of the lampstand, which is an unusual concept. And the picture is this, the Lord God is well aware of what his people are going through. He's well aware of the difficulties they face. He is well aware of the trials that are ahead of them. And so he is on hand, imminent, present, to superintend the metering out of the power of his spirit to his people. This this isn't magic. It's not Christianity and the the power God offers isn't say this right thing, do this. No, it's, it's mediated and superintended by the living God who's well aware and I want to point out one other thing, point two here, that Jesus Christ is the final and ultimate Messiah, anointed one. We know as Christians that the, the priestly office and the kingly office and the prophetic office, those olive trees, if you will, merge into one great office the Lord Jesus Christ has assumed. There's, there's inklings of that even in this book, Last Sunday of November, Pastor Daniel will teach the second half of chapter 6 where we see the foreshadowings. We see the beginning of the priestly and kingly lines come together when, when Joshua the high priest is crowned. But more about that later this month. But this is not imagery that Jesus is ignorant of and he, t- he takes advantage of it. I want you to listen now, understanding. Here's the point. How does God minister and deliver his spirit and his power to his people. He does it primarily through his, through his king, the people's king. He does it primarily through their priest. does it primarily through their prophet, those who give the word of God to them. And then we know that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. In that light, think of some of these passages, Luke 2, 30 to 32. Jesus in the temple being presented Baby Jesus here. For my eyes have seen your salvation and you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Or John 8, 12. It's interesting here. Jesus standing up in the temple at the Feast of Booths. If it was twilight, they might have just lit the big menorah behind him. Regardless, it would have been in sight. He stands up and he says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And and more explicitly in John's gospel, in John chapter 15, really making this point clear, because remember, these trees are the conduits for for the power of the Spirit, for the oil of the Spirit to the lamp. Jesus is the one who gives his people his spirit. John 15, 26, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Notice that I will send him. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. So for this time, there's, there's a priestly office in Israel. Joshua's fulfilling that. He's that branch of that tree ministering the spirit's power to God's people and his leadership. Zerubbabel, as the political leader, as, as good as they're going to get towards a king, he's the Lord's anointed. He's the Lord's man leading. God's going to minister the power of his spirit to his people in his leadership. But we ultimately know that this comes to a head 
and fulfillment finally and ultimately in Jesus Christ, the ultimate anointed and final anointed one. So let's quickly take a look at the word of the Lord. First to Zerubbabel and then to Zechariah. So then, if that's the meaning, this lampstand's showing us God's supply, his superabundant supply, his supernatural supply, his superintended supply through the agency of his king, his priests, his prophets. Let's now, hopefully with some understanding, look at what he has to say to Zerubbabel. Verse 6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you should become a plain. You should bring forth a top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Quickly, two things. God's word to Zerubbabel is be trusting in the Lord. Be trusting in the Lord. There's so many things we can put our trust in, right? We can put our trust in our power. We can put our trust in our strength. We can put our trust in our money. We can put our trust in our position, our reputation, our job, our families, our husbands, our wives. God says, not by any of those things. You will not fulfill my purpose, Zerubbabel. You will not do what I have tasked you to do. You will not be successful. You will not succeed if you trust in those things. But you need to trust in the power of my spirit, my superabundant, supernatural spirit. Be trusting in the Lord. This is how Jesus fulfilled his ministry. Jesus didn't trust in his own strength, but in Luke 4.14, how did Jesus survive the temptation? How did Jesus persevere? How did Jesus suffer and not shrink back? Luke 4.14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. Our own Lord accomplished his mission and his task by relying on the power of the Spirit. How much more should Zerubbabel, how much more should we and following the same pattern, Jesus doesn't send his apostles out after his resurrection, but he tells them in Acts 1, verse 8, to wait until they receive the spirit and power. Then they'll be his witnesses to all the nations. Second, be confident in the Lord. So first, he's pointing, he's pointing Zerubbabel, don't, don't look to don't look to your strength and your might. That's why I think Israel was so discouraged. If you're looking to Israel's clout and might and political power, it was, it, it was low. And if you measure the probability of your success and you look with, with fleshly eyes at those things, there's plenty of reason to be discouraged. God says, get, get your eyes, get your sight off that. Look to the source of of where your success and your strength is going to come from. It's going to come from my spirit. It's going to come through those who minister my word to you. It's going to come through the king that I have raised up for you. And for us, it, it comes ultimately mediated through Jesus Christ. Be confident then. If you can get your eyes off of the temporal and looking at the eternal, a confidence can arise. Not only will he succeed, but massive success. Look at verse 7. It's a taunt. Who are you, O mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you should become a plain. And you shall bring forth the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. And this, this notion of a mountain becoming a plain shows up elsewhere. The, it's, a, it's an imagery in the Bible of, of an obstacle. John the Baptist predicted in Isaiah 40, a voice will cry out in the wilderness, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. 
and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places plain. The picture is this. In front of Zerubbabel is an obstacle. And we don't need to speculate what the obstacle is. If you read through Ezra and Nehemiah, if you're in Dave Lample's class, you have a good idea of some of their obstacles. But they looked like a mountain to him. They looked, they looked big and unsurmountable. And, and God's promise, if he will trust in his spirit, if he will not trust in his own strength, God's promise, if he'll keep his eyes fixed on that, is that no matter how great the mountain, it'll be flattened. And I want you to think of how, how much power that is. Now, I've been going back forth to Des Moines for better part of a year watching people with big machines trying to flatten out and level, not mountains, but little Iowa hills on the 35, right? It's a big job. You can ask, I'm sure Jeb could give you some better details about all that's involved in that. But I just came back from the Rockies, went to a wedding in the Rockies. Had anyone been to the Rockies or any sort of real mountains? And we are winding our way up the Rockies on this little path and even that, I'm astounded. I mean, just rock blasted out of the wall, tunnels. And you're just amazed at the amount of work that is. And God says here, I'm just going to take it and just get flattened. And do you understand the, the enormous amount of power God is promising? This gets back to the superabundant supply. There's plenty of power. There's plenty of power for, for God's purposes to be done. I will give you what you need to, to accomplish this and your troubles will flatten in front of you. I will make your path straight. So much so that it's a taunt and a prediction. So be trusting and as you're trusting in God's power and his spirit, be confident that the Lord will achieve his purposes. That's his word to Zerubbabel. What's his word to Zechariah? Verses eight to 10. The word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Two things. First, the prophet will be vindicated. The prophet will be vindicated. This is a normal pattern in Scripture when God sends a prophet, especially a prophet with long-term prophecies, very frequently, if not always, the prophet is given a prediction in the near future, to vindicate his long promises. When we get to the end of this book, you're going to see some long-term eschatological prophecies about the end of days and the battle of Armageddon and, and the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And God isn't just calling on Israel to, to take that at face value, but he gives them a near fulfillment. He says, look, I'm going to promise these things way, way down the pike, and you can know that I'm a true, true prophet sent from God when Zerubbabel himself, not his descendant, not somebody after him, Zerubbabel himself will finish this temple amid shouts of joy. And on that day, you can be certain, I'm a true prophet from Israel. Oftentimes, I've met a few people who've identified themselves as prophets. I'm not a prophet, I'm not the son of a prophet, I work for a non-profit, but I have met some people who have. And, and I've been prophesied over by some friends of mine, and it always makes me feel slightly awkward. But what I want to ask him is, okay, what, what sign do you have now for me to believe what you have just said. Jesus recognized the validity of that. Hey, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. But look to the miracles that I do. Look to the signs that I do. God had testified to the new covenant by signs and miracles. And here, that's, that's what's being done. The, the prophet will be vindicated. The rest of this book and this prophecy will be vindicated as the near prediction that Zerubbabel himself and no one else will complete the temple. And when that happens, he will have demonstrated the ability to accurately predict the future, thus 
indicating he's a true prophet. This is the test that the Lord said you were to use to separate prophets. If they predict the thing and it does not happen, they're a false prophet. So the prophet will be vindicated. And finally, what was despised will be honored. What was despised will be honored. Verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hand shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. And shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. I just want to very briefly note as we prepare for communion. that This is a pattern of our Lord to take the things that are despised, to take the things that are small, and through what appear to be insignificant means work great wonders of saving. Think of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, describing us. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. And this is speaking of us. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Aren't you glad that God takes despised things and makes them honored? And, and you think of the two comings of our Lord Jesus Christ. He comes humble, and he is despised. The ultimate day of small things is when Israel's Messiah shows up, announces he's the Messiah, and he doesn't lead an army. And he doesn't knock down the Romans. He's humble and he's meek and they despise him. Keep reading in Zechariah. We're going to find he's coming again and he will be honored. That what was despised will be honored. This is the way our, our sovereign God loves to work. He loves to reveal his glory through unusual means. Well, we're going to turn our attention now to a time of, of communion. Trusting in the power of God's spirit in his word, in his Messiah, and the promises of cleansing that we have received.